In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Tower of Ivory, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I've been looking for an excuse to do this sort of talk for a little while now, uh, which is to create an examination of conscience and base it on a different grouping of the commandments than what you might be used to, and on the Beatitudes, which we hardly ever talk about when you're examining your conscience. So let's start with a definition. Conscience is that in man which makes him aware of his sin and shows him his guilt. God gave us our consciences to guide us to right action, which is ultimately to guide us toward God himself. It is a natural capacity of man that God can work through, and being natural, it's capable of being disfigured. Sin is what disfigures our consciences. If our sins are bad enough or repeated enough, they can kill our conscience or change our perception of what's good and what's evil. Our perception changes, but the reality of a human action being either morally good or morally evil, that stays the same. There's this twofold obligation that all men have. The first is to follow our conscience. We have to do what we think is right. Uh, and, this, and the second is that we need to form our consciences. If we study, pray, get to know God, ask our guardian angel to help us with our faults, and to work on knowing ourselves, then we inform our consciences, and we in turn will make better decisions. Examining our conscience means that we're taking an interior look at ourselves. We want to see what's on our heart and what sins come between God and ourselves. To examine our consciences, we need to look at several areas. And the most common areas are the following. Offenses against the commandments of God, offenses against the precepts and laws of the church, with regard to the seven capital sins, pride, sloth, gluttony, envy, lust, anger, and greed, regarding the neglecting of duties particular to someone's estate and life, and concerning the spiritual and corporal works of mercy that were omitted, that is, the good that we left undone. Know that we can sin in thought, word, deed, and omission. Sins of the will, a.k.a. sins of desire, are when you want to sin, but the circumstances block you. Uh, those who wanted to sin but were thwarted are as guilty as if they had acted out that sin uh, that they wanted to act out, but they just didn't get the chance to commit that sin. God is our divine judge. Nothing of what we do is hidden from him. We can lie to ourselves and we can lie to others uh, with what we say and we and say that we've done nothing wrong, but we cannot lie to God. He, he always knows and he's always just and knows exactly what's on our hearts. That means that we always need to have two things when we examine our consciences and we look inside ourselves. We need humility and we need honesty. Where has your love failed God? Where has your love failed yourself? And when has your love failed others, especially those whom you have obligations toward? There are some who say that they have not sinned. The clear answer to that attitude is from the Bible. St. James says that if we say we have no sin, there is no truth within us. A person who claims to be sinless is either ignorant of what their sins are, meaning they're intellectually lazy, or they're lying both to themselves and others, about their situation. And that could be for various reasons, uh, whatever they might be. 
but it's usually to kind of to protect one's ego that they would lie about that. Being honest about your sins can be uncomfortable uh, if you haven't accepted the fact that you're not perfect. Those who are the lowliest and know they need God the most are the ones who have no problems admitting their faults in confession and are acutely aware of them. When people say they don't have any sins, what they're actually saying is they're telling you the order of heaven, that it's God, the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. John the Baptist, St. Joseph, and then whoever it is, maybe if Mrs. Gillicuddy comes next. And that should seem a little off to anyone who's familiar with the saints, because we all have done bad things, and we all need the sacrament of confession. And to say that, you know, you outrank the saint in heaven is, is totally off. Uh, and not confession, it's the usual way that God forgives our sins, so he expects us to use it. God is not boxed by confession, so he can forgive sins outside of it, but confession is the ordinary way to have them forgiven. And if it's available to you, you have to go to confession. You have to avail yourself of the sacrament of healing and forgiveness because God commanded us to do so. The obligation to go to confession is at least once a year. So, if you don't know what your sins are, and it's been over a year, you've already got one right there. Because uh, yearly confession is a precept of the church. When you confess your sins, you need something called contrition, which is sorrow for your sins, and the intent to not do them again. It's not always enough to say that you're not going to commit a certain sin again. You must at times take additional actions to prevent yourself from going there again. Sort of like, think the alcoholic. It's not enough if they you know, put their alcohol on in the cupboard, right? It's, it, they, they've already lost if they have it in the house even. So they have to take these steps to prevent themselves from, from falling once again. The priest will then give the penitent a penance, which they must perform. And if they don't do it, then they have to confess those sins again the next time they go to confession from the previous confession, as well as the new sins that they've committed since that time. And then tell the priest what, uh, what their old penance was. So the priest can kind of judge how long it's been, what they've done, uh, and that they've actually missed one of those times. If you're new to confession, or you've been away for a while, I'd suggest looking up a guide to making a general confession online, if you want to be very thorough. Most of them are good, and they'll get you through uh, much more than you're probably used to or even aware of, as far as sins go. A general confession is a special confession where you confess every single sin that you've been guilty of in life, both the ones that you've previously confessed and the new ones that you have not confessed yet. One side note with general confessions, since they're in the confessing and reconfessing of sins from the age of seven and up, this is going to take some time, so you're going to want to make an appointment with the priest and let him know that a general confession is what you're interested in doing uh, because you don't want to take up the entire time and have all these people waiting in line for confession before Mass on Saturday. Uh, and the guide for a general confession, this, or this particular guide that I'm giving you tonight, it's more about stirring up your conscience and helping you examine areas in general uh, where your love might have failed before God. So if you want more particular, you can go, and there are a lot of guides out there. Uh, confession is Fruitful Practice with an Examination of Conscience. This is put out by Tan Books. It's a very good guide. It has a little bit of everything in it, a little background on the sacrament, and it goes through all the commandments with an examination in each of them. The idea of breaking up the Ten Commandments into five pairs is to help you look at something old in a new way. Commandments are concerned with obligations since they are in the negative. 
there is no way that it's ever admissible to break one of them. The first five commandments are duties that we owe God, and the second five commandments are duties that we owe other people. A command given in the positive would be something like, feed my dog. Think about all the ways you can fulfill that and how creative you can be. It doesn't tell you when to feed the dog or what to feed it or how to feed it. It's just feed my dog. There's a lot of wiggle room in there to get it done. But on the flip side, as in the commandments, if the command is don't feed my dog, you really can't get around that. Giving it food in any way is, is breaking that commandment. And it's, it's the same thing with the actual Ten Commandments. So uh, that's what a commandment is. It's a negative precept. It can't be broken. There is no commandment from God that you can ever break for any reason. But back to the structure of the Ten Commandments, the first five and the last five actually mirror each other, meaning a duty to God in the first set of five is going to be mirrored in the second five by an obligation to man. Remember Jesus' summary of this, that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's an intertwining of the commandments, and it's upon these connections that we're now going to turn our eyes. There isn't just one way to pair up the commandments, but I think it's a little more revealing to see what God demands of us and what de uh, demands we give to our fellow man by looking at them in a little different way. So the first pairing is commandments one and six. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before me, and you shall not commit adultery. The connection between one and six, what underlies both of them, is faithfulness. That faithfulness or loyalty is the foundation of those commandments. We must have a heart that is firstly committed to God, and then committed to our neighbors, and in the right order. We cannot give to someone else what is owed to God alone, and we cannot give to another person what we owe our spouse. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we find the Israelites worshiping strange gods, if you were alive back then and you sculpted some statue, you'd have to worry that some Israelite somewhere would have tried to worship it as a god because they were that bad. They had hearts that went astray from the one true God and turned towards idols. And that's why you see this metaphor for idolatry is adultery, because adultery is unfaithfulness to God. The prophet Hosea is commanded to take a harlot as his wife, and big surprise, she doesn't give up her trade which causes all sorts of heartache for Hosea. Hosea represents God, and his adulterous wife represents the Israelites. God chose to make a holy contract or a covenant with the Israelites, even though God knew they would break it time and again. Adultery and idolatry are interchangeable when referring to unfaithfulness to God. Adultery, in its literal sense, is real. It's very evil, and it represents what happened what happens in the human heart, going to another person other than the one that the person should be closest to. When people don't go to Mass on Sunday, or they practice magic, or they look at horoscopes, all those actions show that their heart is not with God. It, if the husband commits adultery, it shows that his heart is not with his wife. And so you see, that's, that's how they mirror each other. And it's good to check to see where your heart is. Where do your affections go? Do you experience distractions in prayer, interior disquietude, tastes in eating and drinking as opposed to only wishing to eat and work for the Lord? 
and movements of concupiscence that you do not immediately suppress, movements towards things that you know are bad, but you kind of maybe let the thought linger a little bit, or it looks a little bit too good to you. Those can all be symptoms of a heart that's flirting with unfaithfulness to God. Not everyone will experience these temptations or involuntary faults, or they may experience them more at one time in their life than another. So you can be, and it's sort of like a spectrum that you can go in a few different ways with. Uh, the first and the sixth commandments are warnings to keep your sight on God and on your spouse. And if you're not married, if you don't have a spouse, then it's to keep your sights on God alone. That's why St. Paul praises those who have not yet been married. They can live for the Lord alone with a heart that, is only, that only beats for him. When you find yourself being drawn towards other things and people than God, do not be afraid of giving those things up. It will show God that you're serious and you want to remove from uh, yourself this possible sinful situation in the future. You want to make sure that you stay out of the, the line of trouble. You can flip those involuntary movements of the heart around and ask some questions about you and your spouse. Where are your affections toward your spouse? Can you show affection, physical, emotional, and mental? Do you pay attention to them while you are around them? Do you find yourself drawn more toward other people than to your spouse? Do you prefer what your spouse prefers, or do you try to overpower your beloved and only have your way? These can all be involunt an involuntary spark, start to unfaithfulness to your spouse. When love begins to grow cold or seem commonplace, try to perform some act of love to remind yourself how much you love the other. Remind yourself of why you fell in love with them in the first place. The next pairing is about truth. And truth is the conformity to actuality. It's how things actually are in real life. This is the concern of commandments 2 and 8. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and thou shalt not lie. Truth is what is behind the right use of speech. How many times do we hear people say, oh my God? But the question you should ask is, how many people actually mean it when they say it? How many people are actually calling upon God in prayer when those words leave their lips? Whenever God is invoked and the person does not mean to do so, it's a sin against the truth, since their words do not match the reality of what they're saying, and therefore they offend God when they do so. Something done in vain is something done to no effect. It's done to satisfy one's own ego without affecting one's environment. We are never able to use other people as means to our own ends, that means we should be even more careful not to reduce God to a means, to an end. God should be the end of everything we do in life. All our actions and everything we own, it should all help us to get closer to him or help pave the way to God alone. If we call upon God, it should only be for his glory and not for us to feel pacified. Part of maintaining the truth means not lying, which is exactly what the Eighth Commandment is. It is not lying at all to anyone ever. Our speech must always be true. St. Thomas Aquinas makes it clear that we cannot lie. We can be smart about our speech, but we can never utter words that are against the truth. We must be as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. That means that lies are never acceptable under any circumstances. Because remember how a negative commandment cannot be broken. So even someone who, let's say, was hiding Jews during World War II from the Nazis, they wouldn't be able to, uh, they, 
they would have to use smart speech to get around answering the questions from the officers who were searching for them, but they could not lie about that. But maintaining the truth does not mean that we must tell everyone everything we know to be true. There are regulations to the truth. In order for the truth to be spoken, it must be the right truth, told in the right way, told to someone who has the right to hear it, at the right time, under the right circumstances, and with the right intention. If someone uses the truth as leverage or tells it with the intention of doing harm, telling the truth actually becomes a sin. If someone doesn't know he's adopted and their relative tells them in a fit of rage since they know it'll hurt them, you know, that's, that's definitely a sin. Because sometimes the truth can destabilize a marriage. Sometimes it can destabilize a family if you were to tell that truth in the wrong way and at the wrong time. And it can cause grave harm. Remember the right truth to the right person at the right time in the right way. Similarly, those who get into a new relationship should not tell the other all their mistakes. Mistakes that will affect that relationship, they should let them know about. But uh, some things are just between the God and the individual, like sins. This can be a difficult concept for our society, since it knows that the truth is good, but it doesn't know when it's necessary, meaning it does not know how to regulate the truth. Temptations toward the truth can come from using useless words, aka vain speech, and vain curiosities. Curiosity is a sin when the person is seeking truth that they do not have the right to know, or knowledge that would jeopardize them living out their state of life in following the commandments of God. Thou shalt not profane the Lord's day, and thou shalt not steal. These are commandments 3 and 7, and what binds them together is justice. Justice is fulfilling the obligations you have towards others. You might think that the seventh is about stewardship of goods, but stewardship is actually something exterior. These commandments are really about respecting the rights which govern what we owe God and what we owe others. Profaning the Lord's day is taking a day that should be set aside for prayer and family and stealing it for yourself. Stealing what belongs to another is setting aside something for yourself that really isn't yours, that you haven't earned, that you don't have a right to. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh he rested. The Jews were called to rest on the Sabbath. But since Jesus fulfilled the law, and most Catholics are not Jewish, we're to keep the Lord's day holy and not profane it. That's Sunday. We're not supposed to reduce Sunday to something mundane or treat it with contempt or irreverence. Our Sunday obligation is to attend Mass, we're called to rest and pray on that day. We should not be saving to Sunday to get caught up on all our work, nor should we waste time shopping or trying to be productive on this day. Sundays are for God. It's a day to slow down and enjoy a rest from the week, just as God did after creation. Jesus resurrected on this day. We need to be reminded of his victory over death and take time to prepare for being with him for the rest of eternity. We owe other people what they own. God has given humans something called stewardship, or the ability to keep and watch over goods, both material and spiritual. A spiritual good could be the morality of your children. And as a parent, you're in charge of making sure that they know how to live out their faith. Material goods are easier to identify. They can be property, clothing, or any items that someone has come to possess. People have a right to own their own goods. They are entitled to the fruit of their labor, and so systems like socialism, which take that away from people, 
are inherently evil since they disrespect the stewardship each human being enjoys as a gift from God. Property that we own is a way of expressing our individuality, which is not always a bad thing so long as we remain detached from it and it does not distract us from God. We owe God our time on Sundays, just as we owe it to, uh, to others to respect what they have and not take it for ourselves or deprive them of it. Commandment four is honor your father and mother, and nine is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Respecting the family is what these two fall under. The first is a positive commandment, meaning that we need to look for opportunities to honor our parents and legitimate authority. God tells us how the family is supposed to look. The number of children might change per family, but to be a family, there must be a father and a mother. This is the structure that God gave us when he created Adam and Eve, and it is the structure that we must adhere to because it's built into our human nature. Respect towards parents looks different at different stages of one's life. When you're younger, a child owes their parents obedience, so long as their parents don't command their child to sin or violate one of God's precepts. When you're older, children must take care of their parents and hear what they have to say when they give advice. Honoring legitimate authority means respecting the laws of whatever nation you are a part of, just laws that you're a part of, uh, that are part of the nation. It means aiding the peace, stability, and rendering of goods and services which the government is supposed to provide its citizens, or at least open, keep open for its citizens. That means sins like sedition or working to overthrow a legitimate government are gravely evil. There was no reason for the French people to overthrow their monarch in the, their revolution. They thought they had to since certain people from the upper middle class wanted power for themselves and so they got their fellow countrymen angry about their living conditions when the monarchy had done a great job of providing stability and safety for its citizens up until they started spreading uh, discontent among the, the greater populace. This sounds similar to the feminist movement in the United States where happy mothers go into a rally, rally and they come out angry and woke since they never knew how oppressed they really were. And we see this playing out today with communist ideology spreading throughout the United States. One of the precepts of communism is perpetual revolution, meaning that people will remain perpetually angry and perpetually relying upon the government for every good and service when this is not the point of the fourth commandment. The point here is that we need to know where legitimate authority is. It lies with your parents and it lies with those who legitimately have it in the government. Because that authority, it comes from God, as Jesus told Pontius Pilate when he was on trial. We need to be able to identify those who upset the lives of others so they can, so they can grasp power when the opportunity arises. We have to be very careful about these people and these ideologies that are in our own society. Commandment number nine is split from the tenth because of St. Augustine, who drew that line to highlight the dignity of Christian women, especially the Christian wife. Christian women are not property. They are worthy of all due respect, and they must not be viewed as being subhuman. A wife gives stability to her family, and she must not be distracted from her duties to her husband and children. Those who covet a woman who is not their wife are risking the deconstruction of an entirely other family unit, and that is gravely sinful. The people who break this commandment not only harm themselves and the woman they illegitimately pursue, but they also harm their children and their husbands too. 
respect for families. It involves seeing consequences and avoiding the near occasion of sin to prevent families from falling away from God's plan. It might surprise you to see thou shalt not kill, number five, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, number ten, together. But if you think about it, what concerns both of them? The answer lies with preservation, since your neighbor's life and their goods are not yours. When talking about killing in the fifth commandment, I'd like to quote the 1992 movie Unforgiven. It's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take everything he ever had and ever would have. Preservation of life and goods are both contained in the fifth commandment. The first murder, Cain murdering his brother Abel, was about jealousy. Abel had something from God, his recognition and his love for his sacrifice, which Cain did not have. Cain didn't want to earn those things from God. He didn't want to merit them. Instead, he chose the easy way, which was simply for Abel not to have them. Murder takes what someone has from them. It takes their life, their life as a gift from God. And in this case, God's favor toward Abel could not be taken away by Abel's death. But that's exactly what Cain tried to do. Murdering someone deprives them of what could perhaps be the most important thing for them after making a mistake. And that's the chance to repent. That's the chance to receive God's forgiveness and mercy. Preservation of goods as well as property rights are contained in the Tenth Commandment. We cannot take something away from someone who has rightfully earned it and wishes to keep it. To deprive someone of ownership is to disrupt their stability of life as they begin to suffer the effects of being robbed of these goods and the additional anxiety of not knowing whether they can maintain what is theirs in, in the future. They might always be on guard now for someone taking something else that's theirs. But going back to the fifth commandment, it's not simply about physically killing someone. We can also kill someone by murdering their reputation, by spreading lies with calumny, or telling truths about them that others do not need to know with the sin of detraction. This can deprive them of the stability of daily relationships, which they might count on to survive. Anyone who's ever been a teenager should know how much damage words can do to others and how much time it can take for stability to return to the life of a person who has had their own reputation damaged. Coveting what someone else owns can cause you to destabilize your own life. People who agonize over what they have are sinning against God when they are ungrateful for what has been given them. Cain's sin started with him catching a glint of what Abel was offering God. We should be careful to keep custody of our own eyes and hearts so that we do not seek something unjust, something that doesn't belong to us, something that we don't own, something that would disrupt stability in our own lives and the lives of the other person. The effects of breaking the 10th commandment linger if someone acts on evil inclinations. Every time they use what they took, they wound their conscience or they dull it to the pain. When the other person goes to use what was taken, that can be an occasion for them to sin if they're tempted to be at what justice calls for in the restoration of goods. So you see how it's better to simply look away when this envy starts to well up in your heart, when you no longer care about preserving this order that's been given us. When something nice that someone else has catches your eye, thank God for its beauty or the gift of what it is, and then move on. Don't let your eye linger on it, because envy can uproot your thoughts, and it can dominate your mind if you let it in, which can tempt you to actions that uproot your life and someone else's. 
So don't let envy into your mind or heart. Don't even, don't even go there if you know that you're being tempted in that way. Next, we'll go on to the Beatitudes. The underlying question when you examine your conscience using the Beatitudes is whether there was something good God was calling you to do, but you chose not to do it. The Beatitudes are the end of virtue. They're the prompt to act rightly, and they're a sign of blessedness. The Ten Commandments are about the avoidance of certain actions, whereas the Beatitudes are about encouraging us to act in a good way. You can think of the commandments binding us to avoid certain actions while the Beatitudes prescribe positive actions. The Beatitudes contradict the maxims of this world, and they show us how to put the principles of the gospel into action in our daily lives. The world calls those happy who abound in riches and honor and meet no occasion of suffering. The Beatitudes call people spiritually happy uh, and truly happy because the Beatitudes all refer to spiritual realities and attitudes that underline actions, meaning that only God can see them in a person's heart, whether they actually have them or not. The, the Beatitudes are not something external to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who are detached from riches, who make good use of the riches that they do have, and who do not seek the riches of this world eagerly. And if they suffer a loss of monies or things, they suffer them with resignation to God's will when they do lose them. Remember that the Beatitudes are spiritual. It is the poor in spirit who are blessed. I've met rich people who are poor in spirit and they're detached from their money. They're very generous. They use what God has given them very well. But I've also met poor people who are the most miserly people that I've met in my life, who barely have anything, but who are not willing to depart with that. The question with this beatitude is all about detachment in your own life. Are you anxious thinking about not having something? Are you willing to lend material help to your neighbors? Or are you afraid of losing what you have? Do you not want to let them use that? Do you make use of your money to help the church and to help others find Christ? Or do you hoard your money? Do you just use it for yourself? Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Those who are meek are those who act tenderly towards their neighbor. They bear patiently with the defects of others and accept the offenses and injuries they receive without contention, without resentment, and without vengeance. Am I quicker to look at the faults of others or to see my own faults? Can I let injustices towards me roll off my back or am I harsh to others when I'm wrong? Do I always seek the gentle approach when I'm dealing with other people? Or do I want to exert myself? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn does not refer to those who suffer a physical loss, like the loss of a loved one's. Those who spiritually mourn are they who can still be called happy, since they're striving to live a life of virtue. What these people mourn over 
are the sins that they have committed in their past, the evil and the scandals that prevail in the world, and even over paradise itself, since it's their homeland, yet it is so distant. And as long as you're alive, there's always a danger of losing it. Do you find that you mourn over these things in your own life, or are you unaware of them? There is much to spiritually mourn over. Do you find yourself reacting the right way when you come come across these different evils? Does it pain you a little bit? Does your heart go out to these people, and do you pray for them? Or do you pray for yourself when you, uh, you see one of these realities in your own life? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be filled. The justice that this beatitude hungers for is not an earthly justice. It is heavenly justice. This hunger is an ardent desire to increase daily, more and more, in divine grace and in the exercise of good and virtuous works. It's the hunger to be a better person, a person who works totally and completely for God in everything that they do. So are you looking out in your daily life for opportunities to practice additional charity towards your neighbor? Are you looking for people who need help so you can help them, so you can glorify God in those moments, or help clear their path to the Lord? Are you looking out for times during the day that you can pause your work and give some of your time back to God? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy is sort of a funny thing. It does not contradict justice, but it softens what we and others deserve in true justice. The merciful are those who love their neighbor and God for God's sake alone. They show compassion, both spiritually and corporeally, and they use their position and resources to aid their neighbors according to whatever means they have available. Are you merciful to others? Are you gentle with your neighbors, or do you instead seek to assert yourself over them? God is merciful to all of those who whom he allows to approach confession. So do you deal rightly with your neighbor, or are you like the harsh debt collector who did not show any mercy towards others after his master had forgiven a very large debt that was owed to him? Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. The clean of heart are those who retain no affection for sin and keep aloof from it. They are above all else. They, above all else, avoid every sort of impurity. Impurities are any extra baggage in your lives that prevent you from living a life solely devoted to God alone. Remember the overlap between the first and the sixth commandments. It's about faithfulness. It's having a heart that is only for the one and is not pulled by anything else. Do you anticipate ways you can avoid sin by remembering how you have previously fallen? It might be hurtful to think about your sins, But if you've done it once, you can always do it again. So it's good to have a plan. It's good to see, uh, to have an idea of how you can avoid how you've fallen in your past. It's also good to look at the things of what tugs your heart away from God. And how can you begin to practice letting that go? Maybe if you can't let it go all at once, maybe you try to go a day or two without it uh, and, and see what happens. Uh, And then after that, you start to build up that strength within you, that strength to live for God alone and not to uh, to be a slave to these earthly goods that we have. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Peacemakers are those who preserve peace with their neighbors and themselves. 
and who endeavor to bring about peace and concord between those who are at variance. Being a peacemaker does not simply mean keeping yourself at peace. It means bringing that peace to all of those who are around you. Are you careful with your speech, lest you create strife between two people where no strife existed before? Do you try to end arguments, or do you let them continue? Jesus is very clear that someone who wants to make a sacrifice to God should first make peace with his brother before offering his sacrifice. Do you receive the Eucharist while still holding onto a grudge with your neighbor? Uh, it's good to let these things go and to make peace before you actually approach God in the Blessed Sacrament. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Those who suffer persecution for justice's sake are those who patiently bear derision, reproof, and persecution for the sake of the faith and the law of Jesus Christ. All the martyrs, uh, they all suffered and they all died for the kingdom of heaven, and now they enjoy their eternal reward. They lived this last beatitude out to its fullest. Are you willing to defend the Catholic faith to the point of shedding your own blood? Are you patient when others deride you for believing in God and the Catholic Church? Do you stand up for your faith? Do you stand up for the truth? And do you stand up for what is right? Because God has deemed what is right and we don't. Following the Beatitudes not only procures for us the glory of paradise, but are also the means of leading a happy life as far as it is possible on this earth. Those who live out the Beatitudes enjoy an interior peace and a contentment in this life, no matter what adversities they're faced with, even if the world is blowing up around them, if they have God's grace within them, if they're living out these Beatitudes, they have this internal freedom and joy to walk with the Lord. That inner peace and that joy is the beginning, even though it's an imperfect beginning, of the happiness of heaven. It's just a taste of what's to come. Those who do not follow the Beatitudes risk losing their souls and only appear to have the illusion of happiness in this life. The Beatitudes are very important in addition to the commandments in living out a morally good life in union with God. And I hope this examination of conscience helps you appreciate the principles behind the commandments and the spiritual realities of the Beatitudes. So just a couple uh, bookkeeping things or housekeeping issues. My next talk is going to be on March 17th at 6.30 p.m. here at Holy Family. And the next topic will be the myth of overpopulation. It's come up in a bunch of our, uh, our discussions after the talks. So I figure I'll, I'll devote an entire talk to it this time. And I'll now take any questions before we move on to our discussion and refreshments. Oh, one more thing. Uh, I also, I love using the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X. So the current catechism from the 1980s is uh, like 1,500 pages long. This is 150 pages long, and it gives you the exact same thing in a very short and clear format. Uh, Pope St. Pius X, he wanted to have a catechism that was accessible for the laity, that you could understand, that was short and that you could go right to if you needed an answer, and, and this is the one. So highly recommend that. And the other one was the Confession and Fruitful Practice with an Examination of Conscience put out by Tan Books. So do we have any questions? In the back. Mm-hmm. Can somebody, you know, not to lie, 
Yeah, but the means never justify the end, right? So he could have said, oh yeah, I'd be my mistress, and then just had his way with her and then shot her, and then all of them who were in hiding, right? So you can't trust someone who's willing to kill all those people uh, to be good on their word, if they're willing to break it to begin with. And so, uh, but that's, how does that, like, fit in with, with lying and telling the, the truth? Well, no, I'm just giving a sin. Oh, yeah. Is that Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. But the ends don't justify the means, right? If I were to go and take a gun and shoot you because it would save 100 people in the future, right? Can't do that. Yeah, because that's utilitarianism. It's, it's trying to see, like, oh, well, um, it, I, I love giving this question to, like, college kids. Uh, would, would they rather save a dirty old homeless man or a hundred puppies? And they, they start just rationalizing, like, oh, well, the puppies, they would go to all these kids, and they wouldn't be depressed anymore, and, you know, that would save them from committing suicide. And this dirty old homeless man, he, you know, he's, he's probably going to die in, in 10 years anyway, so, you know, what's the point of it? But they don't see that man as an, uh, a person created in the image and likeness of God who is worthy of their love, whom God loves infinitely more than these hundred puppies, even though they're cute and adorable and so soft, you know. Uh, but, but it's that you, you cannot start doing evil actions to try to achieve some good because that evil act corrupts that end that you're getting at. It corrupts what has happened. Could be. Could be some bribery. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus said, those whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Those whose sins you retain are retained. So he gave the power to the apostles then. And you see it in the Acts of the Apostles as well, where people were openly confessing their sins, and the apostles were forgiving them. Because the, we, as apostles, as priests, as bishops, we, we can't read people's hearts. And so God has instituted to be confession, to, to actually say what your sins are, so they can be you know, brought out into the open and the priest can, can absolve them. In the Old Testament, was there anything There isn't. Like, even all the sacrifices in the temple couldn't forgive one sin. The sacrifices in the temple, and all, they were all to turn man's heart back towards God. Because once again, God isn't boxed by the sacraments, but at the same time, since he instituted the sacrament, that's the new usual way to be forgiven your sins. But yeah, before, before Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, uh, there was nothing, uh, we could have no guarantee of our sins being forgiven before that.
I'm not so sure about other religions. And even you start getting into, we'll leave the, um, we'll leave certain like schismatic sects aside because for a valid confession, you have to be given faculties by a bishop because you're, the priest is an extension of kind of the bishop's power. A bishop used to be given a territory. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it gets kind of messy with that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure to be honest with you. I know that the Jews have, I believe it's Yom Kippur, where they're also sort of like saying out their sins in the community. Um, so there's there's sort of like an archetype there beforehand, but it, it's completely different. It's, it's not sacrament. And it's not, the point isn't forgiveness. Um, the point is turning, for the Jews, the point is to turn their heart towards God. Which as Catholics, that should be our point too, turn our heart towards God. But we also get forgiven, which is awesome. Uh, this is the question section, uh, so I'm sorry, no comments are allowed at this time. Now go ahead. So this is like, it is related to, um, sort of like what, with what Father was saying, you, you wouldn't see anything directly related to the type of, um, of confession, like you wouldn't see any confession thing that absolutely, but that whole idea that Father's talking about with the temple or, or the offering sacrifice in the temple, that's something that you find across the board in Judaism with all of Where there's sin, there must be sacrifice. You know, it's, it's why uh, Jesus died for our sins. And his sacrifice is for all of us. Uh, there always has to be that, that recompense to, to make up for it. So. I Yeah, going to confession, it's, it's a good feeling. You feel like your sins have been lifted off of you. You, you no longer have that burden. Yeah, and it is, and that's the, the devil, too, kind of playing with us, because he doesn't want us to go to confession. He wants us to keep our sins. He wants, he wants more things to accuse us of at our final judgment before God. So he wants us to keep as many sins on our conscience as we can. Uh, so he's got more... He's, he's like a lawyer. He wants to build the best case he can against us for getting into heaven. Um, so, yeah, be, be aware of that and just, just go, right? And you feel like you shouldn't go to confession? You probably should. That's probably a good indicator that you should be driving to the church right now. Yeah. <laughs> 
but then your teeth are so clean afterwards, and your mouth is so fresh. <laughs> Yeah. Are both suffering the sin or with the priest? I mean, suffering the consequences, you know, mm -hmm. by God. If the person goes there and do it, you know, it's part of their original sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the gravity of the sin and the type of advice, right? So the priest would definitely incur the guilt for that, like the full guilt. Um, but the person, it would probably be mitigating how responsible they are for it. Because a sin is always going to be a sin. But it'd be instead of like them landing in hell, if it's mitigated to a venial sin, then it's just it's time in purgatory, which is still bad, but uh, it, it's not, they're not held to the same um, the same punishment as like the priest would be for, for giving bad advice. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah, that's uh, that's terrible advice. Um, don't listen to that priest. Yeah, that's like a report them to the bishop sort of thing right there. I mean, that's that's pretty bad right there. Well, I mean, once again, it's Jesus who has told us that we need to do that. And there's something about, right, if you can't actually say what you've done, then that sin still has a hold on you. It still has some sort of power over you that you can't say it. And in the, uh, what should make people feel better is the seal of confession, which is sort of under attack by the United States government. It has been for a few years now. Um, but, uh, yeah, the seal of confession, I can't reveal anything about your confession to anyone. Like, not even yourself. If you were to ask me about, oh, Father, what did, what did you, you know, say to me or in confession last week? I, I can't recall. Even if I can remember, I cannot recall what, what I told you. Um, just because it's, it's, I incur excommunication immediately if, if I break that seal of confession. Because the priest is privileged. He's talking with God's mouth in confession, and he's hearing with God's ears. And we're not, as a human being, we, we don't have access to that outside of the sacrament. And you're also a persona Christi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's the person of Christ. So, uh, I mean, I mentioned this before in this homily uh, from this last week, but the priest is God's instrument in any of the sacraments. So, when David Ortiz hits a home run, he uses a baseball bat, right? You don't say the baseball bat hit the home run, it's David Ortiz who hit the home run. And so the priest is like the baseball bat, and Jesus is the one who's forgiving sins. He's the one who's celebrating the Mass. Uh, it's, it's all God, and we're just kind of his instrument in that. How long does the priest have to As often as you, even more. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, only, we're bound by the same uh, precept as you once a year. But it's really, it's not enough. A priest should be going like every other week, at least every month. 
fair amount. I would I would say every month, fair amount. So in her case, that priest has had to acknowledge that he's both a public Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's difficult if it's in the context of confession. He shouldn't be able to talk about it, but he would have to confess it himself, and in whatever way, say like. If you were to address it, like, Father, you told me this, and he realized that he made a mistake, you would have to say something like, well, a reasonable priest would have never said that. That's terrible advice. Kind of talk about it in third person and not relate that it was them or him who, who said that. Well, I'm saying if he changed his mind, if he figured it out afterwards. Right, and he didn't, and he Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, oh, God will sort it out, but he will be responsible for the sins that he's encouraged others to commit. Uh, but there's also a nifty little uh, thought, um, not thought story, the word isn't coming to me, but about the lock and, and the key. So let's say that this was 100 years ago, the priest had to drive around a horse and carriage to get from point A to point B. And in the barn, there was a barn servant who would feed the horses and all of that. But let's say that the priest... He always left the, the key in the barn door because he was just lazy and like, who, who's going to do whatever. Well, come to find out that the servant goes to him to confession and says, Father, I've been stealing hay this whole time. Right? The priest cannot act on that no any knowledge he gets in confession. So he has to leave that key in that door because he wouldn't have done otherwise. Yeah, so we can't let on that we've learned something in confession. We can't act on that. We can't do... We can't do any of that. Well, what It's knowledge that he's not privy to because he got it in confession. That's the whole point of the priest having God's ears and God's mouth in that. It's not the man who's listening. It's sort of like a privileged time that he needs to just let go of. You, you can point them in the right direction, right? You'd have to give them very good advice, uh, but you can't. And, and if, if they did have it and they went to you and asked for a confession, you couldn't, or like someone who committed a murder, my, I couldn't give them as a, as a penance, turn yourself into the police. Because it's not, that's not getting me good with God. It would have to be something else that I would give them. But my recommendation would be to go to the police and turn yourself in, right? But that wouldn't, them being good with God would not hinge on, uh, like human justice, right? Because it's divine justice in the sacrament. How long can I spend on my confession? Is it in the in the in reading through like the Ten Commandments and in reading through the Beatitudes? Um, and you can kind of spend the some of it the speed reader and trying to get through it and the confession done mm -hmm. out of it. So it can seem it can seem sort of like The length of time is as long as you need to spend on it. Not, not, it's like the Dominican answer. It's not really helpful, but it's true. Right? Uh, because some, if you're used to examining your conscience, it tends to go a little bit faster. If you do it every night, like let's say you 
before you go to bed, thank God for everything that went well. You know, say you're sorry for go through everything that you didn't do well and ask his forgiveness. Then when all of a sudden when Saturday rolls around or, you know, um, you know, your, your bi-monthly conf- time for bi-monthly confession rolls around, you kind of have a better idea of, of these sins that you've been racking up. Uh, but if, if you're going in kind of cold, if you're kind of going from, a, uh, oh, yeah, I just confess once a year uh, to trying to go a little bit more often, that can often, it, it's a bit more of a process. And it, that, takes, that process also takes some more learning as well to get reacquainted with, well, you know, what did I actually do? I always, uh, to certain penitents who are along that path who have typically not used the sacrament that often, I describe our souls as like a window, a dirty window. So if you clean the window once a year, you might just have this grime on it. I'm like, yeah, it's dirty, right? And you don't really know it, it's just dirty. Uh, but you start to clean it a couple times a year or, you know, a few times a month. You say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I missed this. Okay, finger smudged there, you know, a little, a little streak over there. And then you start to clean it even more and more often. And what do you see? Oh, the glass is a little warped. There's a crack there. You see things even in even more detail. Um, and it's all about training and getting yourself used to uh, availing yourself of God's healing and his forgiveness in the sacrament of confession. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.